My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? This is Thomas from trainfully.com, and you are listening to the Trainfully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. Now, if you like our podcast and you find that it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, as I think most of you know, we now have a Trainfully inner circle. And some of you have been reaching out to me asking me, you know, what exactly is the Trainfully inner circle? And why should I join? Well, you should join because the inner circle can help you become a better golfer. And it can do that two main ways. First, by increasing your capacity to play and practice more often. And second, by enhancing your golf specific athleticism, right? Because if you can play and practice more often and you're more athletic, well, then that's going to help you become a better golfer, right? So for example, let's say, that you're dealing with some aches and pains. And those aches and pains are keeping you from really getting enough practice hours. And, or maybe they're keeping you from playing golf on back-to-back days, or, or maybe you can play on back-to-back days, but that second day is a real grind and you're not really being that productive, right? Whatever the case is, if you're not getting that high quality practice time in, then your performance is going to drop. Right. So if that sounds like you, the inner circle has performance programs that are specifically designed to reduce the wear and tear in your body, alleviate those aches and pains and increase your capacity to play more golf. In fact, many people who complete these programs tell us that their body feels rejuvenated. Now, the reason these programs are so effective at rejuvenating your body is because I've designed them to fix your muscle imbalances to fix your joint dysfunctions, your neuromuscular deficits, and your movement impairments. And I know that probably sounds very complicated, and it might even sound a little bit intimidating, but you don't have to worry about that. Because when you join, I become your rehab specialist and performance coach, right? So when you join, we can do an assessment, and I can identify exactly where your imbalances are, and then direct you to which program you should begin with. But let's say you don't have any issues with injuries and you don't have any issues with playing capacity. You simply want to enhance your performance. Well, the inner circle has performance programs for you as well. I've been working with professional golfers as well as athletes from the other professional sports leagues for over 20 years now, right? I've helped thousands of athletes reach their full potential and I can help you as well. The trainful inner circle has performance programs that are specifically designed to enhance your athleticism, right? So it doesn't matter if you're a professional golfer or a very elite athlete, there are programs in there for you, right? So whether you're an amateur golfer who's dealing with injuries, a professional golfer who's trying to move up the rankings or anywhere in between, there is a program for you in the train fully inner circle. And like I said, when you become a member, I become your rehab specialist and performance coach. So that means you can reach out to me anytime you like if you need some one-on-one help, right? So head over to trainfully.com and sign up today. Speaking of performance enhancement, 
In this episode, we have Dr. Sasho McKenzie joining us. So Sasho is a kinesiologist with a PhD in sports biomechanics. And I think most of you know the story of Matt Fitzpatrick, right? The extraordinary gains that Matt has made in terms of driving distance and how that helped him win the US Open last month. Well, Sasho is Matt's kinesiologist and Matt credits Sasho for his amazing transformation, right? But it's not just Matt. Sasho works with a lot of the tour players. And in fact, he's known as the savant of speed. And that's because of the amazing impact he can have on a golfer's club head speed, right? So we're very fortunate to have him here. And he's going to break down the science behind increasing club head speed. And as you know, guys, our podcast gets right into the science behind performance enhancement, right? We don't hold anything back. And obviously, this episode is no different. Sasho gets right into the biomechanics of the golf swing. And I'm not sure how strong your biomechanics is. So I'm going to give you a quick summary first, right? So you can either write this down or make a mental note of it and have it with you when you listen to Sasho speak, because I think it will help you get more out of the episode. So Sasho has identified four variables that contribute to club head speed. So what that means is if you're making a change to your swing and that change doesn't enhance at least one of these four variables, then it's not going to increase your club head speed, right? So this is really important. The first variable is the distance that your hands travel during the downswing, right? So the longer your downswing is in terms of linear distance, then the more potential you have for club head speed. So that means one way that you could increase your club head speed is by increasing the length of your hand path, which means that you'll have to make your backswing longer, right? So that's the first variable. The second variable is the amount of force that you put into the club along that hand path, right? So essentially how hard you swing, right? Now, the thing is that force must be applied in the direction that you want the ball to go, right? So you can't just close your eyes and swing as hard as you can. You have to apply that force in the direction that you want the ball to go. The third variable is the rotation angle of the club. That is how much the club rotates during your downswing. So if you think of some golfers, when they're at the top of their backswing, as they're beginning their downswing, their club shaft might be parallel to the ground, right? And then now compare that to the long drive competitors where they actually wrap the club all the way around them, right? So those long drive competitors, they rotate the club through a larger angle during their downswing, and that gives them more potential for club head speed. Now, the fourth variable is the amount of torque that you apply to the club to rotate it during the downswing, right? So if you're trying to increase club head speed and you're making a change to your swing, you have to ask yourself, does that change increase the length of your hand path? Does it apply more force along that hand path? Does it increase the rotation angle of the club? Or does it increase torque? If it doesn't increase at least one of those four variables, then it won't increase your club head speed. 
Okay, so that's really important. Now, of those four variables, the one that has the largest impact on club head speed is the amount of force that you put into the club along your hand path, right? So what that means is, if you're trying to increase club head speed, you'll get the biggest bang for your buck by increasing the amount of force that you put into your club during the downswing, right? Again, as long as that force is applied in the direction that you want the ball to go. Well, then the obvious question is, well, how do we do that? Well, according to Sasho's research, the easiest way to increase force is by improving your transition sequence. And that's because a good transition sequence allows your muscles to do more work and therefore gives you more potential for club head speed, right? So work on your transition sequence. But what about in terms of performance trading? What can you do training-wise to increase the amount of force that you put into the club along your hand path? Well, that's where variable inertia speed training comes in. And this is what Matt Fitzpatrick did to increase his driving distance. And it's what Sasha and I are going to discuss in this episode. So guys, enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right, so joining us today, we have the savant of speed, Dr. Sasha McKenzie. Sasha, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on, Thomas. Now, I'm sure probably everybody listening knows who you are, but just in case there might be somebody listening who's maybe new to golf or for whatever reason hasn't come across you or your research yet, can you introduce yourself and, and tell us why you got into golf performance? Sure. Um, so I'm Dr. Sasha McKenzie. I grew up in on Prince Edward Island, Montague PEI, um, played Brudenell golf course growing up. Um, wasn't one of my more serious sports, but I played it pretty much every day. Um, it was kind of more like, a, well, I guess, a, an extreme hobby or pastime, more into soccer, volleyball, hockey, track and field uh, competitively. Um, uh, really liked math and physics stuff growing up, got even more into it. Um, in university, but uh, took kinesiology because um, I was also interested in sport performance. Um, but all my electives were, you know, computer science and uh, advanced physics classes. Um, some, I took a lot of stats classes during my undergrad at Dow and I competed on the volleyball team and the track team there. Um, maybe got a little bit away from golf a bit in my undergrad. Um, but then uh, went to grad school at University of Saskatchewan and my uh, PhD supervisor, Eric Spriggings, um, was uh, big into forward dynamics modeling. And he'd done a lot of stuff on uh, diving and gymnastics. And when we were kind of trying to sell each other on um, you know, why we should team up to do some, uh, so he could help me do some graduate work, um, I saw on his desk he had a paper about the burner bubble shaft. It was about you know, why moving mass distally on the golf club didn't really um, increase club head speed according to their marketing claims. Um, and uh, so I was like, hey, this sounds really interesting. This is, you know, golf is really heavy into math, physics, engineering, but it's also as the kinesiology side of the, you know, the, the, the athlete performing and um, the idea that you could have a model of a golfer to answer questions uh, really appealed to me. Um, so I said, hey, let's, uh, 
let's do something in golf. I'm in. And I ended up doing my PhD thesis there um, on customizing shaft stiffness to, uh, to a golfer's swing. Um, learned a lot of math um, uh, in that process um, and got back into golf myself. Um, started playing a little bit competitively as, as an amateur while I was out there and my golf game got a little bit better. Um, still competed on the, the, the track team while I was at U of S we actually won a national championship. Um, I was a multi-eventer. Um, and then, uh, yeah, took, took a job at St. Francis Xavier university, continued, uh, down the road of, of golf research, um, while at the same time, um, coaching, uh, the track and field team. Um, with my, with my wife, Lindsay, um, and I was kind of became the, um, I'm really interested mostly in sport performance. You know, what's the best way to train? What's the best way to improve performance? Um, and I find that most of that starts with biomechanics, you know, even trying to figure out, uh, what is the best exercise to improve muscle strength? Well, you have to understand the biomechanics, you know, what are the loads, what are the forces, um, in order to, you know, kind of figure out what is the dress best training program. That's kind of the fundamentals of it. So, um, did a lot of, uh, training track and field athletes for 10 years, developing programs, um, and maybe spent more time doing that, teaching people how to Olympic lift, um, than I did actually, uh, doing golf research. Um, but still did a little bit of golf research. Um, and, um, yeah, got, uh, got connected with, um, some, some companies because I, I could do some things with my forward dynamics model and I have an inverse dynamics model that calculates forces and torques on the club that Ping was interested in. So I started doing some consulting with Ping, um, started doing some consulting with FootJoy, still with both of those companies. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that's a summary of, of uh, I guess, my, my background. Well, what the reason I wanted to have you on, Sasho, is, is I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to increasing club head speed. And I thought who better to ask to come on and talk about that than you. And why don't we start out with you explaining the four variables that contribute to club head speed in terms of linear work and angular work. Sure. So um, <clears throat> I, I have a very deterministic mind. Um, I realize there are a lot of variables going on, but I, I look at the golf swing and developing club head speed the same way uh, an engineer at Ping would look at um, trying to create ball speed from the impact of the club head and the ball. Everybody treats that as, hey, that's pure physics. You know, you've, you've got Newton's laws and if uh, you know the forces between the club head and ball and then you can figure out, you know, what the ball is going to do. Well, I, I see it the same way with the golfer and the club. Um, it's deterministic. Things add up to club head speed. Um, and that's a bit novel in the golf industry, to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, there's, uh, you hear a lot of people misuse terms like power and energy are the same thing, you know, Hey, let's increase your speed and power. Well, it's like, well, I, I kind of get a bit of an itchy rash when I hear things like that. Things have a place there's cause and effect and we can sort it out. So, um, I like, uh, you said I can get right into the weeds, right? Your, Absolutely. your audiences. So there's two two big ways you can analyze a system and mechanics. You can look at, um, uh, impulse momentum. Um, so, um, force times time equals mass times change in velocity, or you can look at it from a work energy perspective, force times distance, um, changes the kinetic energy of something, um, work equals energy. And I like, uh, for a lot of reasons, looking at 
a golfer generating club head speed, what they're doing to the club to do that from a work energy perspective. Um, and I think it's simpler for if you're educating a coach, it's simpler uh, also for um, a player in terms of talking about it. Um, and the reason is because if we look at impulse momentum for a second and you say, okay, um, I want to, uh, you know, swing this, this club as fast as I can. So at this, at the top of the downswing, start of the downswing, we've got zero momentum in the club. I'm going to apply force over a period of time or torque over a period of time. Um, and it, the more force I apply, uh, on average over that downswing and the longer the downswing, then the more momentum, the more club head speed I have. But there's a negative correlation between downswing time and uh, club head speed. So the best golfers, the fastest golfers in the world tend to have shorter downswings because the more force you apply, the quicker the club gets there. So it's, it's kind of, um, it, it, you're like, yeah, great. That seems confusing. It's non-intuitive, right? You do want to have, uh, you know, the more time you have to apply force, then you will have a greater chance of increasing the club head velocity. But the more force you apply, the faster it happens. So I like work energy um, because you can use um, distance. Um, and so the, the longer your hand path is, so I'll get into work, like, you know, what are the four things? Well, um, the, at the start of the downswing, I, this is why I like a work energy approach. So at the start of the downswing, there's no energy in the club or very, very little kinetic energy. So you want to change that uh, by as much as possible by the time you get to impact. And the more energy you have in the club, the more kinetic energy you have in the club at impact, the, the higher club head speed uh, will be. So we have to do work on the club during the downswing. Um, we've got what the, the work the golfer does, air resistance and gravity. Air resistance is very, very small, maybe five joules if you're swinging at 100 miles an hour um, or, you know, out of the, you know, um, less than a couple of, around a couple of percent if we're looking at air resistance and gravity. So the, the golfer is what's changing uh, the energy in that club. Um, <clears throat> and the point that they're applying the force to um, determines um, how much um, linear work they're going to do. It's, it's how, how long of a path the midpoint of the grip is going to travel in the downswing, length of the hand path, and the average force applied along that hand path that determine the linear work. And angular work is determined by the amount of rotation the club goes through. So you can picture it like uh, on a clock face, right? The, the hand rotating around an analog clock. Um, hopefully there's no, not too many young viewers out there that don't know what an analog clock looks like. That happens in my biomechanics class. So the amount of angle the club uh, rotates through and the torque that's applied to it. So those are the four things that will determine the, the work done in the club. The length of the hand path, uh, traveled in the downswing, the average force applied along that hand path, the amount of club rotation and the torque applied to the club, um, average torque applied in the downswing. And, and those things literally add up to the change in energy and the change in energy. If you have one more joule change in energy, one more joule of kinetic energy to impact, you're going to have more club head speed. Um, so if you want to make a mechanical change to someone's swing to say, right, we need more energy in that club then you should know what, which of those four variables you're influencing. So when I work with a player, um, that's where my mind goes. I go, okay, well, how long's their hand path? What's their force along the hand path? What's how much rotation are they, you know, applying to the club and the torque and, 
And I, you know, I think about ways that we can manipulate those variables. Which variable has the biggest impact in club head speed? And then what are some simple things golfers could do today at the driving range to enhance each variable? Well, the biggest, the, 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 the biggest one is uh, average force um, applied along the hand path. Um, it's maybe the most um, obscure in terms of thinking about it. It affects so many things and you're like, oh yeah, great, Sasho. You just have to apply more force. That's not very helpful. Um, one of the easier ones is hand path length. So a lot of, uh, so I'll maybe address that one. Maybe is more to the point of your question from a practical standpoint, and then I'll talk about the average force. But um, so I, I see a lot of golfers in their fifties and sixties who um, kind of work themselves into a very constrained swing. Um, and maybe it's due to some lack of mobility, but uh, you know, increasing the amount of hip turn they have, allowing that lead heel to come off the ground, um, really allowing the hands to move around a larger arc in the backswing direction um, will give them much more opportunity to increase club head speed. I see a lot of people kind of selling themselves short and leaving stuff on the table in terms of um, how far around they can, they can move their hands. So that's, that's one that a lot of times you can be like, oh, there's some easy stuff sitting on the table, uh, especially with driver. Um, um, but the biggest one uh, that shows the most difference, like if, if we had, you know, a handful of golfers go to the range and club head speed varied between 80 and 120 miles per hour, uh, the biggest predictor of that, why do you swing at 100 and I swing at 90 and our friend John swings at 120, it's that average force uh, applied along the hand path. So I like to use the analogy uh, when talking about linear work of pushing a car. So you've got a, you know, a, a manual stalled out. You need to push it to jumpstart. You have to get it going fast. The, the hand path length is the, the bigger distance you have to push it. Hey, we're going to push this thing for you know, uh, 200 feet. Or you know what? We're only going to push for 50 feet, but you better push it really hard. Um, and if you go to the side of the car and push on the passenger door, well, I'm pushing from behind on the bumper. You're not really helping me. So it's, it's the force applied along in the direction that that midpoint of the grip is traveling that matters. And the biggest way, you know, easiest way is, hey, just swing harder. That often helps a lot. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll get into that with the stack training a bit. But um, assuming you're already doing that, uh, a better transition sequence. Um, so there's a, a lot of talk about um, kinematic sequence of golf. If you're a golf nerd or a golf junkie, um, and that's the it kind of become the kinematic sequence has kind of become synonymous with the peaking of, of speeds in the downswing. So the pelvis peaks first, then the torso, then the lead arm, you know, and then the club. That's true to an extent, but I see a much stronger correlation with the transition sequence. So, hey, you get your lower body moving first in the downswing, feel a stretch, you know, from the lower body, you know, across the torso through the, through the obliques, then feel a stretch in the lead shoulder, then feel a stretch in the trail shoulder. And then finally the, you know, the wrist angles release. Um, <clears throat> so having a better transition sequence um, uh, is probably the best way to increase the average force along the shaft during the downswing um, to, to do more linear work. Um, a lot of golfers, rush the hands down before um, the lower body even starts to, to really move. Or you, you can play decent golf with everything kind of moving at once. 
Um, but I also hear a lot of people saying, well, get the hands down first, you know, put the hands down first. I hear instructors saying that, and then, you know, then start rotating hips. Well, that's, you know, anybody who has a kinesiology background that should seem crazy to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get into the performance ring. Cause that's really, I wanted to introduce those concepts first. So people have an idea about, you know, some simple biomechanics there, but I really want to get into the performance training here. And for the, for the listeners, two of the most effective ways that we can train for speed in any sport are with overload training and overspeed training. Now in golf, the way that the overload and overspeed conditions are met is a little bit different than in other sports. And I want you to get into that here in a moment, Sasha. But before we get into the variable inertia speed training, can you explain what overload and overspeed training is in general terms? as well as the neuromuscular adaptations that are associated with each type of training. Sure. So you, you have to establish a reference point. So if something's over, then what is it over? Um, and so whatever sporting skill you're looking at, it's, it's what, what, what are the loads and speeds when you normally play the sport or when you normally execute the skill? Um, so it's like jumping with just your body weight athletes playing soccer, football, basketball, they're jumping with their body weight. Um, they're, you know, that's, that's the normal reference condition sprinters sprint with just their body weight. Um, um, in golf, the reference point, um, would be the driver, you know, so that's, that's the, the reference, how fast are you moving your body when you're doing the sporting skill, you know, under normal conditions, what are the loads on your body? when you're doing the sporting school under normal conditions. And so when we do overload, we want to create a scenario where uh, the forces that our muscles have to apply are higher than they are in the normal condition. And when we do overspeed, we want our body to be moving faster or the implement to be moving faster when we do an overspeed condition. Yeah. So with the overload, the stimulus is a force, right? It's a force yeah. where with overspeed, speed is the stimulus. That yeah, way. essentially. Exactly. It, it, that's a good way to think of it. In the end, let's not go too far down this road because it gets philosophical, but in the end, it's really uh, both are forces, um, but it's a force, uh, you know, at a much higher rate. That's what your muscles adapting to is, is applying a slightly less force, but it's contracting faster. But right. I, it's much simpler, much easier. And there is certain to just moving the body faster. There is a bit of an, a, a stimulus there. So, yeah, exactly. Move the body faster or apply more load. And then what are the, like, when we think of the neuromuscular system, what mm -hmm. benefits do we get from overload training? And then what benefits do we get from the overspeed training? Yeah. And you know, that is, um, uh, I'd say relatively debatable, mostly theoretical. Um, I've got some, you know, based in the literature, some of my own ideas, some, some good ideas about what's happening. But there, you know, not many studies where someone has done overspeed and gone in and, and um, taken a muscle biopsy to look at what's actually happened, right? Um, we do know that experimentally, um, there's lots of research on uh, jumping and sprinting, for example, that, hey, if you do jump squats loaded, so that's overload training, you jump higher. If you do jump squats with a bungee tied to you, so that you're lighter and you move your joints faster and you train that way, you know, then, Hey, you also jump higher. And it seems like there are different mechanisms. So there, there, if, if you're, if the stimulus is different, we're, you know, we must be targeting a different mechanism. So like one theory would be with the overload is that you are recruiting, um, 
more fibers to participate in the, the motion. Um, so it's like, hey, if I swing my driver and the, the load that I'm applying to it, um, you know, at impact is 400 newtons, right? Um, then it's like, okay, well, I need to re recruit these fibers to do that. Okay, what if I added weight? So now at impact, I need to apply 450 newtons. Well, we got to recruit a few more fibers to do that. So maybe we can start um, changing th th those, those new muscle fibers that we're acting, that are being recruited to say, hey, well, maybe I can participate when we actually use the driver. Right. Um, or, you know, I, I'm, and then, it, you know, most of these adaptations are, 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 are uh, from a nervous system level. You know, it's, it's like a lot of them are happening in the brain to like, okay, well, um, as an example, like one benefit of doing overload training with a golf club, um, if, if I swing my driver at 110 miles per hour and it's going to pull on me with 400 newtons of force and I'm in balance. And then what if I started my downswing and I was swinging a little bit harder um, and I get up to 150 miles per hour? Well, now it's applying 450 newtons and it's going to pull me off balance. So maybe I self-regulate and I say kind of like down-regulate and say, you know what? I don't think if I, if I do that, I'm going to lose my balance. So I don't swing that fast. But if I do some overload training and I swing a club that's heavier than my driver and so I'm swinging it at the same speed, but I'm kind of losing my balance, then I can kind of create a new motor program, you know, motor schema in my head that allows me to prepare for that added load. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I can also be recruiting, you know, so there's that level kind of organizational in the brain in terms of a, a motor program, a way to move that can, you know, benefit, uh, be benefited from overload training, as well as, you know, changing the structure of the muscle. Right. So if you do strength training, um, most of the changes are neurological. We're recruiting uh, initially, right? When you get really strong, it's like, okay, we're more efficiently recruiting these fibers, less co-contractions. Um, and all these adaptations are going on when we do overload and overspeed with the golf club. And eventually you will start to see the fibers themselves change. Um, uh, probably not transition between fiber types, but certainly within a fiber type, um, be more adaptable to applying slightly higher loads. Um, and with the, the over speed, um, you know, there, there's probably some, some organs that say, Hey, you know what, we don't want this joint moving this fast. Um, but you, uh, you do it enough in practice and then they're like, Hey, okay, you know, we can have these muscles shortening this fast. That's not the end of the world. We kind of get, you know, desensitized or used to it. Um, and also, uh, probably, uh, the rate at which signals are being sent to the muscle fibers increase like rate coding would be you know a, a a probable adaptation that's happening with overspeed so it's like okay let's start sending signals at a faster rate let's maybe start sending them sync a little bit more synchronicity you know at certain points in the swing um so certainly the overspeed is probably more um neurological but i could see some specific adaptations to muscles like, oh, you know, the amount of, you know, um, chemicals that are available to make, allow those myosin heads to attach and detach a little faster. I think, you know, like one of the things that I see sometimes if, if, we're, if we're still like, say, thinking about like a track and field example, um, quite often when people do like, say, overload 
training, they'll have somebody tow a sled. And to do that efficiently, to do that, to optimize the force stimulus, the weight of the sled isn't random. And I think quite often people just, you know, put some weight in the sled and then they have the, the person run. But really the weight of the sled should be determined by the speed of the athlete, right? And generally speaking, we don't want the athlete's speed to decrease usually by more than 10% while they're towing the sled, because if it does, that means that the sled's probably too heavy and we're not really optimizing that overload stimulus. And it's the same idea with the overspeed training, except with overspeed training in track and field, the athlete's not towing anything. They're actually getting towed by something, but same idea, the amount of assistance that they're getting is determined by their speed. In the case of overspeed training, we typically don't want them increasing by more than 10%. Right now, obviously, speed training in golf, Sasha, is a little bit different than in track and field, but the same principles apply. So why don't we get into the golf-specific speed training now? Can you explain what variable inertia speed training is and how the stack system works? Yeah, so with things like jumping and sprinting, and I would agree with everything you, you, you said, um, we influence the, the load or the speed the athlete's moving with an external force, right? We can be like, all right, like what you said rang true. I was a multi-event athlete and I was 180 pounds and, you know, my competitor both running 11 seconds, or my colleague, I should say, teammate, 220 pounds. He was a little better than throwing events. Um, we would tow different weight sleds to run uh, at about 12 seconds. You know, um, you know, we'd be doing, we wouldn't be doing hundred meters, but equivalently, right. If we ran that far, that's how much we'd slow down. And when we got, we would do, um, just, you know, the old school surgical tubing bungee cord, um, we'd start with the same length of tubing, but the person towing him would stretch out an extra 15 meters so that we would both get pulled along and we both run in, you know, 10.2 seconds instead of 11 seconds, uh, with golf it's really cumbersome to try to change the or apply an external load to the club. You know, there's this thing called Robo Golf Pro, but it, it, it can't really match the movements that you're doing in real time. I mean, maybe someday there's going to be some kind of system that can match the coordination of a golfer in some kind of crazy feedback loop and apply just the right amount of overspeed or overload as we can do kind of like an isolated situation with like a biodex, but even biodexes can't keep up to do, really fast overspeed. Um, even looking at single joint planar motions. Um, so what I did was I wanted to know, well, let's, I, I would do an inverse dynamics analysis on a whole bunch of golfers swinging a driver. And I know what the forces and torques they are applying to that driver are. Um, and uh, I'll speed up some of the research, the torques that are being applied in transition are what I wanted to influence as a stimulus and the force is kind of, uh, pulling the grip off later in the downswing was the, another force I wanted to, um, manipulate. So it'd be kind of like in sprint training, being more focused on, um, a certain type of stimulus at the start versus the stimulus you want to apply when you get in, you know, in, into the top speed running phase, you know, it might not be the same. You might have two things you want to target because they're very different in the loading you, you get on the club is very different. So, so how do you, how do you manipulate that load? I know what the, I know what it is now when the golfer swings the driver, 
and I want to be within a certain percentage of that. Well, instead of the external force, you can manipulate the inertial properties of the implement. And there's three inertial properties. You've got the mass, the center mass location, and the moment of inertia. Um, and you can't just make it heavier. If you put all the weight in the grip, you're going to get a very different stimulus than if you put all the weight at the end. Um, so it was, okay, um, I want to manipulate. I need a club, a stick, a stack, that I can change the weight so it manipulates those three quantities such that I can get a stimulus and the torque being applied in transition that's appropriate. And for some other sets, I can get a stimulus in terms of the force being applied through impact. The force being... Uh, uh, and I'm simplifying this, you know, really there are only all forces being applied, but some of them we break down, you know, break them down to the torque being applied. Force that's pulling the grip off versus a, a push and pull between the hands um, is what I'm thinking of in terms of a torque. Mm -hmm. And then also I want to know what those need to be to get the correct um, overspeed stimulus, right? Um, and so uh, instead of just randomly guessing and shooting in the dark and being like, okay, uh, let's just stick some weight on here and uh, we're swinging it slower, faster. I wanted to know what the stimulus was. No different than if you were doing, um, it's really easy when you do weight training, you're like, all right, uh, let's go in and do a one RM. And if you do a one RM with 500 pounds, hey, the stimulus is 500 pounds, right? That's, that's it. You can see it. It's a number. You can add it up. And then if you want to do 80% of that, you just, oop, there it is. I take off this weight and I'm at 80%. If you go, right, let's add 50 grams to the end of the golf club. Okay. Well, did that add 50 grams to the force? No, it did not. Um, what did it do to the torque? Uh, no, you, you can't, you have to do an inverse dynamics analysis to figure that out. And then you start to go, okay, well, um, let's start to devise experimental studies to test these loads. At what point does the load get so much where the increases in speed start to go down? And you'd always have a I would always have a control group that just swung their driver. Um, and then uh, you would say, okay, first set of studies were at what point does the load become so much that actually just training with your driver's better? Everybody gets faster. If you take a group of individuals that aren't particularly trained, um, everybody gets faster if they just do something, right? Um, unless you're really doing some crazy training and you have no idea what you're doing, but um, uh, something that hurts them, I guess. Um, but the question is, at what point does that training just become either you, you, it takes you so long to gain speed or eventually you plateau so quickly that this is clearly not effective. So kind of found those parameters and then started doing research on, okay, is it better to do overspeed for three weeks and then overload? Is it better to alternate overload and overspeed session to session? Is it better to do the mixed within a session? Um, and there's lots of um, soft science stuff that comes into play, like level of motivation, you know? So I remember reading a study about plyometrics, um, you know, coming out of Russia in the, in the Soviet Union in the, in the 80s. Um, and it was a paper where I, where I read it. Um, but it was, you know, uh, the training worked really well, uh, but we had trouble getting the participants to jump off the 10 foot box, uh, you know, on repetitions two, three and four. And it was like, OK, yeah, <laughs> I can see why they were just doing drop jumps, you know, anyway. Um, so if it, it might well be that some of the stuff that we figured out, like most of the time we mix, 
overload and overspeed. Um, it might not be from a pure physiological standpoint, the best way to go about it, but if the athletes are more into it, they're more motivated, um, for whatever reason, if it experimentally works out to be better, um, then it's better. Um, and so, uh, uh I realize maybe I'm talking ad nauseum here, but I'm gonna blend right into what the app does here, Thomas, because this is the best part for me is, as a scientist, the most exciting part is that, okay, pretty sure we've got some stuff that works. Here are some training programs. And, you know, as a kinesiologist, like a big study would be if you could have three groups of 20 for a training study, if you went and picked up any journal now, three groups of 20 and, and you, you pre-tested them, you were guiding them through every workout. That would be in a very impressive study. Shit. We had 60 people, three groups of 20. Every session was supervised. We tracked exactly what speeds were, what weights were down to the, you know, every 10 grams. Um, we know exactly what the rest is for every rep, for every set, how much time they took between days. We even have them qualitatively fill out a, a health and energy question at the end of every workout. Um, so this is where the app's at now, where we started out with these programs, but you know, I, I, who knows, right? With a, with a study of only 20 people, maybe you missed something. So now we've got this, this app with 10,000 users. Um, so thousands of programs that have been completed. So if you get um, assigned a program, we'll get into how different people get assigned different programs, I'm, I'm assuming in a bit. But if you get assigned a program and I get assigned a program, well, what, we've, what I've done is I've worked in experimentation. So just at a simple level, I might say, you're going to do four sets of five. I'm going to do five sets of four. No, no one's doing that at, at, at the university level for research because it's like it's such a small effect. No one cares. Um, and this is just a clear example, right, of something like, yeah, we're both doing 20 reps, but does it matter how you bundle it? Um, well, hey, I'm going to take the next, uh, you know, uh, whoever signs up next to start the foundation program gets four sets of five. The person after that gets four sets, uh, five sets of four da, 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 until we get 200 people in each group. They complete the training program. If if you don't do the program um, to a certain level, like you skip a bunch of days, your rest times are too long, you get we the software weeds you out of the study. And then we go, hey, look, this group of 200 people was 0.53 miles per hour faster, right? So the, the numbers are so large. And, the, and even though the effects are small, you can be like, hey, great. Um, and then that becomes the new program. And then at the same time, there's another group of 400 people uh, we're looking at rest times, or is it better to do the heavy stuff before the light stuff? And in some of the changes we've seen, um, so then the, you know, then the software updates and it's like, all right, this is now our new program. So it's this infinity loop of, of little studies that continually improve where we're never moving backwards. You know, it's always, this is probably a little bit better. Um, which is, which is great. It's built in the software I've done in the last, you know, uh, I guess year, two years, I've done more research than I could ever do at the university level in terms of speed training, right? The iterations of studies would be, oh, would take decades. Yeah. And then the layers of like, there must be multiple algorithms then going on like different layers of artificial intelligence to keep track of all that and update all that. I mean, that, that when I was going through this as well, that's what struck me as just extraordinary is not only do you have this product that is helping people improve their game, but they're also involved in this massive 
research project at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And luckily we started um, from a spot where no one's ever going to be doing a training program that, that won't make them faster. Do you know what I mean? We, yeah. we, we, the foundation was set and now we're just yeah. tweaking things. And so no one should really be concerned. You're at least doing a program that will get you as fast. Uh, it, it's definitely going to be better than when the system first came out. Put it to that way. And then so then if you're like a 55-year-old male with a one handicap, then the algorithm is going to provide you with the program that's best for that demographic. And then on top of that, tweak it to make it even more specific to you as an individual. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, in the original, you know, five or six years, well, six or seven years of research, it's like, okay, um, the simple studies, like everybody in this group is doing heavy stuff for six weeks, right? Um, everybody in this group is doing light stuff for six weeks. And some people respond better. Um, and you go, okay, well, why did this person seem to gain eight miles per hour, but this person only gained three? You know, and, and then the same in the light group. So then I've got all this data in terms of how fast they were initially swinging each weight, right? So the overspeed versus the overload, and you can dump it in and, and do a statistical analysis and say, can I predict why Thomas did better with the heavy stuff and Sasho did terrible with the heavy stuff? But here we have a person who's similar to Thomas and they seem to do much better with the lighter stuff relative to the group. In fact, we got 10 people like this. And so then uh, what, what it turns out is we, we've, we've got this um, initially in the pretest, um, we collect data that gives us a force velocity profile. And there's a few things that determine what program you should be in, but this is the number one thing. I wanna know, relatively speaking, how fast you swing stuff slightly heavier than your driver and how fast you swing stuff that's relatively light compared to your driver. And that's the, 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 the heaviest weighting in terms of pushing you to a program is that information. We also ask some qualitative questions like, do you feel like your driver's light? Um, you know, how, a few questions like that, that also push you around your age and your gender and your current swing speed also push you towards a certain program. So you do this baseline test and then we provide a rank ordered list of, of, of programs um, that you should, that you could select from to improve your speed. You should pick the one that's recommended. So you pick that, that one and that's a, an initial start at customizing to you. But then, it, and we have your first workout set up. Hey, here's what your first workout's gonna look like. We can't tell you what your second workout's gonna look like because I need to know how you perform in that first workout. So then, you know, maybe you adapt quicker than someone else. Uh, maybe the baseline information wasn't bang on. That's okay because we immediately start updating the program after your first workout. Wow. So we, I, I know the weight you're swinging. I know the speed you're swinging it at. And then the next workout is going to be altered based on that. Every, every set we do, we have a set in there uh, with a stack weight that's equivalent to your driver. And so that serves as kind of a reference for speed. And we've got all of these uh, equations that correlate how fast you're swinging that stack weight and what it means for the loads that are being applied to you in transition in terms of torques, the loads through impact in terms of pulling the grip off forces, and, and also the percentage of speed you're moving your body at relative to your driver. Um, so we're constantly, your program is constantly changing as you go through it. When we say create a periodized program for an athlete in the gym, creating a periodized program, 
we're going to have training blocks where we're going to focus on a specific adaptation that maybe that athlete needs to work on more than the other stuff, right? So you might do four to eight weeks of strength training or something like that, stabilization training, whatever the case is. Is it the same way with the app where the app is kind of measuring the person's swing and going, okay, now your next program, you're going to work on this now because you're kind of lacking in that a little bit. Yeah. So we, each, each program has, uh, four phases. Um, and, uh, we have some programs where you can select the number of workouts you want to do and the phases get divvied up. Um, number of workouts in each phase change, uh, based on what you select. Uh, there's a lot of automation, but, um, the main variables that are true for everybody across the phases is the volume and intensity, relatively speaking. Um, so, you know, phase one of every workout of every program um, has the lowest number of sets and uh, the longer rest um, and um, uh, sorry, not longer rest, lower rest, um, but total shorter duration of time. Um, and there's a bit of a taper at the end. So there's, a, there's kind of, you know, some periodization in there, but it, when you don't control everything, we, I haven't overdone it there. There's certainly some built in, but when you don't control everything the athlete's doing, I don't know if they just played 36 holes. Um, I don't control if they're doing CrossFit every evening. Um, I don't, you know, their sleep. Um, it's really tough to get specific. With the tour players I work with, I take that into consideration for sure. Um, but uh, I don't want to sound like a cop-out, but it's like, uh, it's just, we're looking at just speed training. Um, there's a bit, bit of periodization going on, but I don't have enough information to really periodize super specifically to the person. The one thing we do have, um, and if you were going to dynamically change someone's program, a sprint athlete, and you knew their power levels, like it's getting common now, Hey, let's do a vertical jump test to see your current level of preparedness. Well, with the stack system, you're always doing max effort swings with that reference weight. So I kind of know where you're at. Um, and we do things like if you do um, miss a week, the app knows that. And so when you go in, you get prompted to do a return to form workout. So if, you've, if you're like in phase three and it's the highest volume um, and you're doing step swings and it's the largest stimulus on your body and then you take two weeks off, the app won't start you back up with that. It's gonna say, hey, we're going to do a return to form workout might even, and depending on how that goes, might get you to do another return to form workout and another return to form workout and build you back up and then jump you back into whatever workout session you're on in that phase three of the program you were doing. Um, so we try to accommodate a little bit like that, but um, it's tough to know everything that's going on in the athlete's life. You mentioned earlier that it's the transition that really has probably the biggest impact on, on club head speed. We recently had uh, Dustin Grooms on the podcast. I don't know if you know Dustin or not, but he does a lot of really interesting research with uh, brain connectivity following an MSK injury. And so he looks a lot at, at motor learning. And one of the things that he said that he's found with athletes is they tend to learn best when they're provided um, knowledge of results versus knowledge of performance, right? So for the listeners in golf, that might mean knowledge of results could be what your club head speed was versus knowledge of performance would be kind of like 
a critique of your swing mechanics, right? So have you done any data looking at that? Like, do you know if swing efficiency might actually improve doing the speed training because they're just so focused on trying to increase the speed? Yeah, it, um, a lot of people are initially concerned a lot, too many. Um, hey, uh, you know, I'm gonna end up using bad mechanics and I'm gonna lose accuracy. And that is just not the case. You know, thousands and thousands of data points now, tour players, you know, Matthew Fitzpatrick is a great example. Um, where we've got, I've got two years of PGA tour on course performance data, not just practice data, right. When it actually counts in a major championship. Um, and luckily he's, he's had some breaks with the stack where his performance has decreased, you know? So it's like, a, it's a really good case study. Um, so even at the highest level, his mechanics, when he swings the stack, um, sometimes, and this applies to everybody, you can think about thoughts you want to have when you swing the golf club, as long as it doesn't slow you down. So if you've got a nice thought of like, oh, I want to turn my torso into my lead arm. I want to feel like I'm, you know, um, you know, really applying a lot of force to the lead leg halfway down, whatever it is. Hey, if that's going to help you increase speed, you can think about that. But really, it's about swing stick fast. And, um, and if you look at that number, getting back to knowledge of results, you swing, you see the number pop up on the radar. Most people start to figure out uh, organically, um, you know, through, you know, just explore, exploring, maybe not even conscious of it. Hey, if I, you know, kind of don't rush my transition, I allow kind of, you know, my lower body to start first, look, the speed jumped. If I loosen my grip, look at that, the speed went up. Um, and some people aren't even really aware of it, but, um, Hey, if I'm super tense in my whole body and I feel like I'm, you know, how I would feel if I was taking a slap shot, wow, my speed really drops. Um, so there is a lot of that. And, and, and I'm a big believer that uh, the mechanics that increase club head speed, if someone has higher club head speed than someone else, they probably have better mechanics to hit it straighter. Um, that seems to be pretty clear um, across a, you know, a wide group of golfers. Um, and and that we built that into the app where we, when you go to swing, uh, a certain weight that tells you, hey, load 195 grams on, tells you what intent to use, shows you an image of the weight you're supposed to add on. It also tells you your previous best. So you go, okay, 180 grams. My previous best was 110 miles per hour. And if you beat that, the app cheers and says like, hey, new record, right? And so you become uh, hyper aware of, that's what makes it fun. And, and because the weights change every workout, you know, uh, an 18 session training program, you might have sets with 15, 20 different weights. So you've got opportunity, you know, you might be kind of at a plateau, but it's a new weight that you've never swung. Boom. There's a PR that day. And you're like, all right. You know, like even, even I know that, okay, I've never swung this weight before, but I, and I've, you know, been using the stack forever, but I get excited. I'm like, sweet new weight. <laughs> I'm going to set a PB here. Um, yeah, the, the knowledge of results is, is big and not just on the day, but we, every swing you've ever taken can be with a couple of taps accessed in the app. You know, wow. you can go back and look at every workout you've ever done from every program and you know the rest, the weight, how fast you swung it. Um, and one thing we have done, people ask about this, is we reset the, the PBs during the workout. So during the program, so the PBs only stay with that program. 
So if you start a new program, um, hey, your, your PB start fresh over again. Um, because no one, you know, there's a lot of us out there who eventually we're going to be speed training just to maintain speed. And once we get over 35, if you've been training for three or four years, it's still nice to set PBs. <laughs> well, and that's what I was going to ask you as well, in terms of, uh, potential, what, like from your perspective, you I mean, you got a ton of data. What do you yeah. think the potential is for tour players as well as for, say, elite amateurs who are in their 40s or 50s? Yeah, I think for 95% of the golfing population, I'll, I'll speak in generality so that it's easy to understand. Um, uh, there, there's a, about a 20 mile per gap, 20 mile per hour gap with their driver between their kind of on-trained, I do nothing state and there, I'm going to train as hard as I can for three, four years, right? So if you're sitting at, if you're um, 35 and you're swinging at hundred miles an hour, you might be able to get up to 120. So I picture these two, right now they're sitting in my head, these lifetime speed curves, right? From when you're six all the way to 96. Um, and they're probably going to peak somewhere in the you know, mid to late twenties. Um, and they go up and down and it's, it's, it's a complicated looking curve. Um, and I see two of them. One, if you do nothing and you're completely untrained your whole life and you never play any sports. And then another one, if you optimally train for club head speed from the time you were born. Right. And, and this is what the shape of the curve would look like. And at any point you can, you could be between those, you know, maybe you played baseball growing up as a kid. Well, that's going to bump you up a little bit. Those two lines are, are essentially set by genetics at birth, right? And where you fall between them depends on what you do during your life. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, most people can see if, if you're kind of just an average golfer, played some sports growing up, never did any speed training, uh, you can gain six, seven miles per hour in six weeks and own it, bring it to the course. Yeah. Some people see 10 um, because they've done nothing and their mechanics are terrible. And by doing this, they're actually, their mechanics improve and they see gains from everywhere, neurologically, as well as just, you know, swinging better and, and um, oh, just even realize, oh, I can swing this hard. I wasn't even swinging hard. Um, but then the gains get tougher, you know, as you get into true physiological adaptations in like, you know, the end of year one, year two, year three, um, we're talking one or two miles per hour, right? And maybe by the time you're year four or five, you're like a half a mile per hour. Right. If you look at Olympic athletes um, in the, you know, they're training, 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 a tenth of a second is like, are you, I'd be awesome if you gained a tenth of a second every year of training. Right. It'd be amazing. Um, and and some people are like, tenth of a second. Like, what? Like, doesn't, why would I run for eight months to, you know, train hard to get a tenth of a second? Well, you know, that's the difference between uh, Usain Bolt and a whole lot of other people. Um, and so if you're willing to grind it out for, you know, kind of four years, five years, you can reach your kind of true potential and eventually it's going to start to go down. But the great thing is no one's really training hard enough to be there unless you're Kyle Berkshire. Right. Um, so anybody, whether you're, you know, 25, 35, 45, 60 can actually start to see gains, you know, um, they can launch themselves and start to work up towards that, that higher curve, you know, they're, they're, they're what their maximum capabilities are. Um, and, 
And where I'm at, this is where I think most golfers fall is kind of where I sit is, um, you know, in Canada, I've got three months to play some decent golf. Um, I want to do stuff with my kids. I got to cut the grass. Like I kind of ever, like most people probably come out of hibernation. Um, I don't even really want to put an hour into speed training a week in the summer. I just don't want to do it. I do just enough. I'm 20 minutes a week to kind of not move too far back, but I'll get slower by the end of the summer. I just don't do it enough. Um, but then I try to get back at least where I was the summer before. And I've done that every year since I was 40. I've actually gotten a little bit faster um, than I, I haven't quite fallen, you know, enough to over the summer to like lose everything. And then I get a little bit faster when I start the next year. Um, and that's where I think most people would be like, I see stack training, speed training is a fundamental skill that you'll do for life. Right. And it, you take it every, you take it to the, to the tee box every time you play unlike a lot of other golf skills, um, you know, like putting can kind of come and go a little bit, you know, the best putters are still the best putters, but what you'll, you, you could see a guy who's number one in putting in the world, uh, all of a sudden be hundredth at the next tournament after four rounds, no way if someone's swinging 123 miles per hour, are they swinging 112 at the next tournament, right? So they show up with that skill every tournament, as long as they kind of maintain it, you know? Well, that, that I wanted to ask you because I have a client, he's in his mid fifties. He's a very good golfer. He's like one, one handicap, um, golfs three to five days per week during the season has a history of low back pain, right? So a lot of our programming that I do with him, with his training is organized around trying to increase the capacity of his, of his back. For somebody like him, would you recommend that they do speed training during the season or should he save that for the off season? If you're retired or you don't like, I feel like I'm in the peak chaos phase of my life. I've got, you know, a 11 year old, nine year old, six year old that are each in three sports um, trying to, you know, grind it out with, you know, a lot of different things at work. Um uh, yeah, then I'd say, yeah, probably I'm going to only do, you know, I do two eight minute sessions a week, you know, before I play golf and I kind of, but so I'd say definitely try to do it. But if you have more free time, like I have lots of tour players who like Matthew Fitzpatrick did a full stack workout as recommended by the app after his Friday round at the Scottish open. Like that was his priority. It was like, great. He just went out and had the second lowest round of the day at the Scottish open, but he's like, he knows what happens if you don't keep training, you know? And so I've got, uh, to me, a golden rule is if some people can go a little bit longer than this, but to me, you've got to get a speed session in every five days. Yeah. If you wait, if you go, Oh, I'll take two weeks off and then it'll go hard for two weeks. No, it doesn't work. You know, you're probably going to get injured. Anybody who lifts weights kind of knows that it's like, even if you can get down, if let's say you're doing, you're working on a bench, you know, and you're like, all right, you've got your incline and maybe some flat bench or something. You got two or three chest exercises, maybe some flies, and you're building up strength, everything feels good, you're really enjoying it in the gym, you know, you're in that kind of been doing it for like, six weeks, and everything's going great, and you're seeing gains. And then you go, I'm going to take two weeks off. And you come back, and you're like, Oh, man, these 80 pound dumbbells feel like they're 120s. And then you're super sore. And then you have to wait. And it just sucks. Whereas if you had said, you know what, I'm traveling, I'm going to get down, I'm going to do like two sets of 20 push ups, you know, every couple of days, all of a sudden, you come back two weeks, later, and you're like, yeah, actually things feel a bit heavy, but actually I'm doing like one less rep, but I'm using the same weight. And now I'm not as sore. It's like, if you can just, now you can't 
do that for four weeks in a row, but if you can just kind of get in and do something to stimulate and keep things going, um, it, it does wonders. So you were, you were talking earlier about, you know, as we start to reach our potential, right. And when we're training longer, um, it makes it more challenging to get gains. Do you have any data about pairing the speed training with maximum strength training to try to take advantage of that post-activation potentiation or would you recommend people try that yeah you know um i haven't seen much i know what you're you know i think it correlates well doing a max squat and a jump yeah um or doing a heavy lift and then going and doing a sprint i think this highly coordinated um golf swing stuff with very specific muscles that aren't really even close to high strength levels it's more about high speed levels it just it's not quite there but i will say that um there is certainly effect from acutely swinging stack you know this is what we do a priming session which is a bit of post-activation potentiation i'm sure in there where we do this priming session where um you swing the 195 it's very quick takes eight minutes you, so you do like your equivalent driver weight swing for four then we do a light set to get you moving really fast. And then we do a, a slightly heavier set than your driver. And then you pick up your driver. You had get the, you get the benefit of the fast swings two sets ago that I think are really, really important for getting your body moving faster. But then the heavy set the, at the penultimate set to your driver gives you this feeling that you, the driver's really light. And that is the, the really good combination at, that we found as opposed to going uh, heavy, then light or light, light, is people then perceive their driver to be heavier, which actually kind of sucks, even though they're swinging yeah. it maybe a little bit faster because then they perceive that they don't, they have no control, but golf's also about control. And if you step in and you're like, I own this driver, it feels like a Batman racket and not in a bad way. Like I, I can swing this like crazy and I can do whatever I want with this face. It's I'm in control. What about, you know, what Bryson's done bulking up? What are your thoughts on that? I think it was um, uh, maybe 2% of his gains were due to training and a lot of it probably um, slowed him down. Yeah. You know, like, okay, it was just, it was two things that were correlated. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, measuring your shoe size, you know, as you get, um, you know, better at math. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm getting better at math because I'm taking math in school in grades one, two, three, four, five, six. It's not because my feet are getting bigger. Um, so, you know, I, especially the bulk, some of the strength training maybe helped, but he did not need to get that big. That's my opinion. I think it was like, he chose that route and, but you can do both. You can get bigger and you can also get faster, but I don't think one was causing the other one. If you look at the, uh, the levels of force that are required, um, and in certain, some of the muscles that, that did get bigger on him, it's like, that doesn't need to be applying that much force. It needs to be moving just really, really fast. Um, you know, the golf club weight driver weighs 320 grams, uh, badminton racket weighs hundred grams. You, you'd, you no one would ever think that a giant man or woman would swing a badminton racket faster because they're stronger. And that's one of the fastest moving implements in sport. Um, well, we're only about 200 grams in the grand scheme of weighted things, you know, we're 220 grams, uh, heavier than a badminton racket. It's not it's not a sledgehammer. We're not doing Highland games, uh, hammer throw or anything. Right. It's so, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
totally agree. I totally agree. And it was one of my, something that I get asked a lot myself. So I thought I'd, I'd ask you as well, just to confirm my own, my own thoughts on it. Another thing, you know, and this is something that I, I feel quite strongly about in the way that I approach my training with my clients is like, we don't get better at a sport in the gym, right? And I think quite often people spend maybe too much time in the gym. What I mean, there's nothing, I mean, obviously I'm a kinesiologist, I'm, I'm a strength coach. I want people in the gym, but the purpose of their training is to facilitate primarily for me, their practice so that they can have a more productive practice because they can have a better practice then they're going to get better at their sport. And that's one of the things that I really like about the stack system is it has the golfers basically playing golf almost, right? They're working on their actual swing while they're doing it, which I think is better than spending more time in the gym. I don't know what your thoughts on are on that. Yeah. And, and that's why it's, it's, I think the most efficient way um, to get, fa- to get faster because you can, you can improve your swing mechanics while at the same time you're doing the most specific type of training in general, for a lot of people, I first like them to think of it though, as it's about swing stick fast. Um, so some people will try to hit perfect positions, swing at 95%, not, this is the number about, about, um, one in 500 people go through. And what's great is these all pop up in the, the software that we have the back end software, one in 500 people in their first six weeks programs gain less than two miles per hour. And so I reach out to all those folks. Sometimes they reach out to me before, before I reach out to them, but it's not very many people. So even with 10,000 users, it's not a lot of people. Um, and the vast majority of those 75, 80% of those folks are just not swinging hard enough. So right. I, I'll, I'll have a conversation with them and I'll say, look, if, if you were uh, a track and field athlete and you went out and you were going to try to improve your hundred meter time by running at 90% all the time, right? 800 meter runner training for 800 meters is never going to get faster at the hundred. They're never probably 800s. Maybe, maybe they will get a smidge faster. Let's pick a 5k person. They can run all that they're running all the time. Their hundred meter time is not going to improve. It might even get slower. Um, over, you know, over, you know, five or 10 years of training. Um, and this is why it works for tour players as well. Like all tour players, like Andrew Putnam is a good example. I swing driver all the time. I hit hard drivers all the time. How is just adding more swings going to make me faster? Well, you're swinging those drivers. It might seem hard to you, but you're swinging them at 90% or 95%. There's no stimulus. You, you need the maximum effort. And then your body's like, oh, this is what you need me to do. My muscles are like, oh, Oh, maybe we should just maybe go get recruit a little bit more. You know, maybe we should fire the nervous system a little bit more efficiently. Maybe, oh, okay, oh, this is the new demand. But if you know, it's like a callus. This is our bodies are amazing things. If we, if we, you know, never st- apply the stimulus, there won't be an adaptation. You will never get a callus unless you exceed what your skin can currently handle. Your muscles, your nervous system, your body won't improve unless you push it. So I do see a lot of people making really nice looking golf swings with the stack. And I think to those people, I would say, no, it's, this is swing stick fast, but there are a lot of people, if you're a high handicap slicer, um, it's like, Hey, it was a, this happened a lot in our lab. We would, we use the flight scope um, initially in those first five or six years of research um, to track speed. And it also puts up a swing path. And a lot of golfers are like right-handed golfers, 12 to the left swing path. So they're massive slicers. 
And I would say, hey, while you're in here, like that number should be at least zero. You know, you want to get rid of that. So while you're swinging as hard as you can, I would say swing out the lab door. You know, the lab door was kind of out to the right for right-handed golfers. And they would be like, holy smokes, you know, like after four weeks, every session was supervised. My research assistants would be like, you know what? I'm stepping up to the 10th tee today and hit this big slinging draw. I never hit one before because you've got a million reps in swinging hard with the correct path. You know, so the, it, the stack system can wear both hats. If, 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 if you don't want the intent to transfer, then it doesn't have to. So if you're swinging this thing wild and losing balance, and you're like, oh, that's going to be happening in my driver's swing. But if you don't intend for it to happen, it yeah. won't. And then what I tell tour players is, hey, when was the last time you practiced short game? Oh, you know, a few days ago. I'm like, okay, you have a 58 or a 60. I play a 60. I'm like, did you hit any uh, sand shots with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Describe for me your sand technique. Well, I open up, I put it in the front. You know, I try to hit like a couple inches behind it. I'm like, okay. And then what if you took that and you try to hit like a low spinner? A oh, back foot, you know, same club. Yeah, same club. I'm like, did you ever worry that, you practicing your bunker shot with that 60 was going to completely annihilate your ability to hit the low spinner? Uh, no. Well, exactly. Because you weren't sitting there hitting the sand shots thinking, this is what I got to do when I go hit that low spinner. When you pick up the, you know, 40 pound dumbbells in the gym, you don't think, gee, my grip's a little, you know, golf term grip's a little weak here. I better make sure I get my index. You know, I can see a few <laughs> more knuckles when I do these, uh, you know, these preacher curls, right? No, you, you don't go, God, now, I'm not going to be able to grip the golf club the right way because look at how I'm, you know, pulling down in this chin up bar. It's like, eh. different, uh, different end gram. What about, yeah. what about, do you have data on, or is there a best way to start introducing the ball or does it matter? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, we've, we have added now um, uh, uh, there's a special session button on the app. So there was enough people who were like, Hey, it's not transferring. There was still a governor there um, that was like balls present mm, back yeah. to old habits. It's not a high percentage, but it, it happened enough where I added this speed priming session with balls. So you actually can track your driver speed while hitting balls in the app. Um, but one thing I do tell folks, is they're like, hey, my, my, you know, my dry driver speed is, is up 12 miles per hour. My encore speed's up one. So I'll say, all right, I want you to swing the stack. 195 take a swing the stack have the radar running then do a dry swing with your driver and then hit a ball and 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 i want you to repeat those feelings you know if you're a little bit looser a little bit less constrained lead heel comes off and just let the ball get in the way you're on the driving range maybe you whiff it maybe you tow it and then all of a sudden they're like ah that you know a lot of people are like yeah i can hit it i just didn't even realize i was changing my swing so it just opens up a world of like, boom. And all of a sudden they start to close the gap between um, what they can do with just the stack and dry swings. And when they actually hit a ball um, for some people, that's not an issue. Some people actually, they see the ball and they swing harder. Um, but, you know, for a segment that, that kind of like, okay, let's take a stack swing, take a driver swing, then a driver swing with the ball and repeat. Okay. That, you know what, that driver swing with the ball didn't feel quite as smooth and free. Okay. Stack swing driver swing, driver swing with the ball with the radar running. So there's the, the number, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome, Sasha. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media and then where can they go? I'm, I'm sure there's a huge waiting list for the, for the stack system now, but where, where can people go and sign up for that? 
I'm still shipping. I've got a quietly shipping in Canada. So if there's any Canadian listeners, I've got a few left in my garage that I've, I've been shipping out. Um, our distributor in Canada is, is all out, but I'm still doing it. Um, they can go to thestacksystem.com and they order. If you're from Canada, it gets routed to, to, to us. So even though it'll say October, I'll probably be able to get it in, at least for the next couple of weeks. Um, I'll be able to ship. Uh, I got a few hundred left in the garage. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I want to get more active on social media. Things have been busy the last little bit, but I do have uh, a ton of content on Twitter. If people, if you flip, you know, if you flip through my stuff on Twitter, um, I've got lots of kind of cool golf geek science stuff on there. Yeah. And, and for the people who, if you, you know, there's some people listening who like to read research like I do, you do have some of your research on your website as well. Yeah. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I think maybe the last three or four articles aren't quite up yet, but uh, yeah, pretty much everything else is up there. You know, there's not too many Sasha McKenzie's kicking around out there. So if you Google Sasha McKenzie golf, you'll see all my uh, podcasts and I think my webpage pops up. Yeah, I've got a few. Yeah, I got a lot of content out there. If people want to, if people are interested in this, there's, there's no shortage of, of me on the internet and golf science stuff. Well, Sasha, I really appreciate it. I know the listeners really appreciate it as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Thomas.